like you to turn in your Bibles uh, now to the first chapter of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. read the first chapter of this uh, first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. Follow along if you have the Bible as I read these verses. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab was the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Matan, Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken 
by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Please encourage you to keep your Bible open to this passage. As I read it, or as I began to read it, you may have thought, "Uh uh-oh, what in the world is this visiting minister doing today, uh, preaching or reading this genealogy? And Mike McDaniel is glad that I had to read it, not him. Um, Genealogies are are something that, uh, as people come to in the Bible, we tend to skip over uh, or just feel like, I just don't know what the purpose of this is. There's a um, comedian one time, who a comedian who had a a part that he had... video or whatever it was back in those days, and in that uh, uh, episode, uh, he comes into a church, the man comes into a church, and he's sitting there, you know, he's come to church, and you're kind of in the back of the church looking at him, it's just a small group of people sitting there, and the preacher gets up, and he starts talking, but everything he says is just garbled, there's, you you can't, you know, it sounds like a language, but you can't understand anything that he's saying, and uh, the fellow in the pew there, he's, you know, trying to listen, but he just can't, can't keep up, and then he begins to fall asleep, and lots of other humorous things happen. But I'm afraid that may be how some people feel sometimes in our churches, maybe because of the big words we use or because of some things we say or we, we, we say commonly, but we don't communicate as well as we should. And hopefully I won't be guilty of that uh, today as I speak about this genealogy. But, you know, genealogies are something that people are taking an interest in, too. A lot of people are going back and trying to find out who their ancestors are, where they come from, and, and so forth. We had someone call us, someone we know as an acquaintance, uh, a friend, not a real close friend, called uh, recently or emailed, I guess, this, I guess it was recently, and said uh, he had found that there was a hemp hill, my last name, in his family background and so he was communicating with me and saying do you know much about your family history is it possible we're related so he looked back I looked at some of the things he sent and looked as far a little bit back where I could and there didn't seem to be any connection so that's good for both of us I I guess but uh, anyways people are very interested in genealogies in some ways and so I hope to show you today that, why, that this genealogy is important and that we can be thankful that the Holy Spirit put it in his word for us in Matthew and why it's here and then some application for you and me uh, to take home with us. So the, there's two points, if you have your outline uh, in the bulletin, there's two points that I want to think about today. The first is the reasons for this genealogy and then we'll go on to talk about some lessons that can be learned from the genealogy. So first of all this morning, I want you to think with me, why is uh, there a genealogy at the beginning of this book of Matthew? Uh, Why did God, the Holy Spirit, guide Matthew uh, in this, what has become the first book of the New Testament to record this genealogy of Jesus Christ? And I'll mention several reasons that kind of come together. Uh, For one thing, the Hebrew Old Testament 
begins, and con- begins with and contains many genealogies. There's over 10 genealogies in the book of Genesis. And in the second chapter, as it's describing creation, it actually says this is the genealogy of the heavens and the earth when they were created. That's kind of a strange thing to say, to speak about creation as being a genealogy. But when you think about it, that kind of makes sense. There's God creating things. He's bringing things out of nothing, bringing things out of nothing. He's beginning the universe, the world. And so this is the genealogy of creation. And then as you go on along, there's the genealogy of Seth and Noah and Abraham. And there's speculation that some of these were written documents that families kept a record of who was the father and the grandfather, the grandfather and the father and so forth. Just like we uh, uh, like to keep uh, records of that. And if not written records, there were certainly oral uh, things that were said in families. And you can imagine parents wanting to teach their children, this was your great-grandfather and your great-grandmother, and this is so forth as you go down the line. And so it's very natural uh, that there be a genealogy, that there be genealogies in the Bible. And Matthew, think about it, is the first book of the New Testament is very much copying Genesis, in a way, the first book of the Old Testament, as he begins with a genealogy. Uh, Genesis is the genealogy of the universe, and the forefathers, the patriarchs of the faith, Matthew is giving us the genealogy starting way back with Abraham. It's the genealogy of the coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, so that's one, one reason for the genealogy here. Several more. The genealogies tie together the family of God. Uh, these, what Matthew has here is taken in a large part from Genesis and from the book of Ruth and from the book of First, Chron- or Second Chron- First Chronicles chapters 1 through 3. A lot of that that's here is already written in the Old Testament. So we're tying together the old covenant family of God and the New Testament family of God. And and a lot of times Christians today put aside the Old Testament and don't realize the connection between the Old and the New Testament. Now there are differences in God's uh, first covenant with Israel and in the new covenant he has with the church. However, there are a lot of similarities too and we we don't want to miss that. Genealogies link real events to real history. That's another reason for them. Uh, what happened in the Bible is not fairy tales. It really took place in history, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Genealogies also provide a logical way to begin a biography. If you consider these Gospels, in one sense, to be biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, which they are to some extent, it's a logical thing to say, here's where Jesus came from. Uh, here's who his parents were. Here's whose generations go back to. Here's the roots of this person about whom this gospel is speaking. Not long ago, I uh, have read a, a biography of Abraham Lincoln and then a biography of John F. Kennedy. And in both cases, the author told some of their history, some of their family history, with the date they were born and so forth. Now, the author didn't, in those cases, start with the genealogy. He started with some interesting story about Lincoln or about Kennedy to draw me in, and he did draw me in. But eventually, he came back and said, now, this is when he was born, and this is who he is, and this is where he comes from. Uh, Genealogies are important for that. If you think about it, Matthew starts with his genealogy, but what does Luke do? 
He has a genealogy too, but it doesn't start until chapter 3. So Luke introduces more of the story to begin with, and then he comes back and says, and here's where Jesus came from. But Matthew starts out with that genealogy. Most of all, I think we can say that the reason for this genealogy is because Matthew's great goal, which is certainly a goal of uh, all the gospel writers, Matthew's great goal is to show that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the anointed one for whom Israel is looking and for whom the whole world is looking. And the genealogy is meant to show us that Jesus is that promised Messiah. And Matthew will show us other reasons to believe Jesus is the Messiah, not only his heritage here that he talks about, but this is very important. And notice how he, he writes this genealogy. He says at verse 1, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. And then he starts with Abraham in verse 2, the one to whom the promise was given that all nations would be blessed through Abraham's descendant. And so he says, from Abraham there was Isaac and so forth. And then in, chap- in verse 6, he comes to David. And you remember, David was the one who said, I want to build a house, a temple for you, Lord. And the Lord said to David, I'm going to build a house for you. Your sons are going to sit on the throne forever and ever until the Messiah comes. And so we see, oh, this one is the son of Abraham, who was to be blessed, blessing to all nations. This one is the son of the great King David, the king who's going to be king of kings and lord of lords. And then it goes on down through the history of the deportation to Babylon and to the time of Christ. And it goes through the list of the kings uh, of, that were descended from David. And in this, Matthew is emphasizing Jesus' humanity. In the genealogy, he's emphasizing his humanity. If you look at the second part of what we read, the birth of Jesus Christ, that's really emphasizing his divinity. Look at verses 18 through 25. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When Mary was betrothed, before they came together, she and Joseph, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. So this son is the son of God, is emphasized here. And then the angel comes to Joseph and says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because the child that's there is the uh, progeny of the Holy Spirit. And then uh, it says in verse 23 that this was to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14, where Isaiah wrote, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a child, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the birth narrative here, as much as it tells of the birth or the preparation for the birth, is in a sense emphasizing particularly Jesus' divinity. The genealogy is particularly emphasizing Jesus being human. Now, it's true that we go down to Joseph, who's not the real father of Jesus, but you can see that it's the, the progeny of Abraham. It's the uh, tribe of Judah from whom this one is to be born. Joseph and Mary are from the tribe of Judah, from the family of David. And so we are told this is both the human and the divine person who is the anointed Messiah. And you know, if you and I were Jewish and living uh, in the days of the Old Testament or the days between the Old and New Testament or at the time of the coming of Christ, 
we probably, I'm sure, we would have been somewhat confused, or at least maybe if confused is not the right word, at least not knowledgeable of just how, of just who this Messiah would be. Is he a human hero, the son of David, who's going to come and defeat our enemies? Or is he God? Because the Old Testament in its prophecies seems to talk about him in terms of divinity and, and yet other times in terms of humanity. And certainly then when the New Testament comes, we get the answer to our question. Jesus is both human and divine. He is the son of God. He is the son of Mary. He's the ideal person to come as our savior. He's the only one, both God and man, who could understand us, live like us, live a perfect life for us, and yet die on the cross as an uh, uh, infinite sacrifice for our sins. So it's really a, a magnificent thing and a beautiful thing to have this genealogy at the beginning of the book of Matthew. Well, let's go on then to think now about three particular applications or three lessons we can learn from this genealogy. What is the Holy Spirit teaching us here? Let me try to impress on your hearts three lessons. I'm not saying this is all the Lord wants us to understand or to take home from this passage. Maybe there's things already that you're drawing from this passage as you look at it. But these are at least things that we should understand and things that we should think about as we look at the genealogy. First of all, the first lesson, believe that Jesus is the long-promised Messiah. First lesson, I want you today to go away from here, just strengthen in your belief that Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. He's the Savior of the world. As we've already said, Matthew is seeking to declare this to us even in this first chapter of his gospel. He is Jesus, the one who will save us. He is the Christ, Christ being the Greek word for Messiah, the Hebrew word, meaning the anointed one, anointed as prophet, priest, and king. This is Jesus, the son of Mary. He was supernaturally conceived in her body while she was betrothed to Joseph in fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah. This Jesus is the seed of Abraham who would come from Abraham's descendants and would bless Abraham's nation, the Israelites, but would bless the whole world. This is the greatest descendant of David, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, this one that we believe in, Jesus Christ. He is God with us. So believe what the scriptures say. Believe what was prophesied. Believe what the Gospels teach us. This is the long-promised Messiah. For unbelievers who have honest doubts, I say kindly and respectfully, if not him, then who? If Jesus is not the one that was promised in the Old Testament, then is there a Messiah coming at all? Was it just all make-believe make believe what the Bible said in the Old Testament? what God's proclaimed to the Jews, what God's promised to Abraham and to David? Is that all make-believe? Or is there a Messiah still coming, or did we miss him? If not Jesus, who is it? Why does the Old Testament repeatedly look forward to a coming one who's going to save us, who's going to undo the fall, who's going to be the second Adam who brings life to those who put trust in him? 
Is it just made up? Is it just an idea that the Jewish people came up with? Why is it so consistently prophesied in the Old Testament? Why did Jesus fulfill these things? Were the gospel writers uh, just making it up? Were they just trying to convince you of something that wasn't true? Would they be willing to die for what they said was true about Jesus Christ if it wasn't true? No, I don't think so. If not Jesus, who? This is something you could talk about with your Christian, non-Christian friends. Uh, if not Jesus, who? You could talk about that with your Jewish friends. And it maybe can strengthen your own heart in your faith in times of doubt. Believe that Jesus is the long-promised Messiah and Savior of the world. And go forth in that confidence and tell others about him. Well, the second lesson I'd like to bring to your hearts today is be assured that God's timing is right. Let's think about that. Be assured that God's timing is right. Before I, I get into that, I want you to look at verse 17, and, and I want to just note uh, something, verse 17, that may be a bit of a puzzle, or you may have a question about. Before I uh, explain it, let me tell you that I'm not going to be able to tell you for sure what it means. Verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. First of all, notice there's these four high points that he notes in the genealogy. Abraham, then David, then the deportation to Babylon, and then the Christ. And he's saying that there's three t periods of time in there, and that those three periods of time were all 14 generations. Actually, if you look carefully, you'll find that it doesn't come out quite 14 in all cases. Also, if you go back to some of the Old Testament uh, genealogies, you'll find that a few kings are left out. And so Matthew has combined this in some way to bring it to 14 generations. We don't know if there were exactly 14 people in each of these lines. But the question is, why uh, is this a point that Matthew makes? He's obviously saying, see, <laughs> it's 14 generations from Abraham to David. 14 generations from David to the deportation of Babylon, the time when the Israelites were taken into exile, and then 14 generations to Christ. Well, I, I looked at a few commentaries, and I haven't looked at that many or all the commentators, commentaries that have been written, uh, and, but I, what I find is some uh, of the commentaries don't even deal with the question. Uh, a few of the commentaries that I think come from unbelieving uh, sources say... This is just some kind of Jewish uh, fascination with numbers. So there it is. We don't know what it, what it means. Uh, believing commentators have come up with some other reasons. Uh, the few that I read weren't very convincing to me. I just didn't quite get them. So I'm not going to give you the answer today. I, I, I said uh, I could say this. I actually came up with my own idea, but I decided it maybe isn't good to share that this morning, especially speaking in a pulpit from the Word of God. I'd rather not start a cult that thinks uh, that there's something, these 14 generations mean this or that. So I won't share that with you, and I won't share that with you even if you ask me. So, uh, the, so I myself don't know, I haven't understood why this is here. I think, and this, this is not the answer I'm not sharing with you, I think the most likely significance is 
that uh, Matthew is saying Jesus' coming was at the right time. Jesus' coming was the right time. There's 14 generations, 14 generations. There's these points in time. Jesus' coming was at the right time. And thus, my point uh, here, my second lesson that I want you to, to gain today, God's timing, be assured that God's timing is right. So let's think about that for a minute. It, it certainly must have seemed over the generations to the Israelites and those expecting the coming of the Messiah, that God was taking a long time. Certainly people longed for the Messiah, and people wondered when he would come. But when he did come, even though it seems like there was a long delay, why not, after Adam's sin, why not you know, save all of us right then? There could be lots of reasons given for that. But when Christ did come, it was just in time, it was at the perfect time. Many have pointed out that the world was ready. The Roman peace was in place. The roads for the gospel proclamation were open. And there's lots of other reasons that people have given for why the time Jesus came was the right time. And I think there's a lot of good reasons. But we don't have to speculate. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. And so we know that it was the right time. It was the exact time that Christ was to come. Even if we can't name all the reasons for that, we know that it was in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoptions as sons. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. He came none too soon. He came none too late. And this is always true of God's timing, isn't it? It's true of God's timing in terms of salvation. It's true of God's timing in terms of providence. It's true of God's timing of our death. It's true in God's timing of the judgment to come. God's timing is always right in salvation. Just as Christ came and did his part. In the salva- his part in salvation by dying on the cross and rising from the dead in the fullness of time in the big picture of salvation so God sends his spirit into a person's heart at just the right time you as a Christian uh, may wish that you were born in a Christian home and brought up by Christians and that didn't happen to you but God saved you at the time that was best and in the way which was best. On the other hand, you may have been trained in the things of God from an early age and sometimes wish maybe that you'd gone astray in a greater way so that you could have more appreciation for your salvation. But God chose and called you in his own time, in his own way, for his glory and in the best interests of his kingdom. God's timing is always right in salvation, both in bringing Christ and in saving individuals. God's timing is always best in providence. God's providence, too, are on time. The big events of history, the wars, the peace times that we long for and that don't come when we wish they would, great cultural changes that may be good or bad, philosophical movements, inventions, 
All these time, things are under God's control. <coughs> Disasters, famine, and so forth. God's timing is always right. And God is good and God is merciful. <coughs> Excuse me. This is true in the providential 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 things in our own lives. Not only the big events worldwide, but the small events which aren't small to us, the important things that happen in our lives, births, deaths, marriages, sickness, and so forth. God knows what you need. God will provide. But all of us go through times when we long for answers and they don't seem to come. We wonder sometimes at the difficulties that come our way, the discipline he may administer, the unrealized hopes and dreams. But God is in control. I was talking uh, just yesterday with uh, somebody I've known for a long time. <coughs> and I was, uh, we were talking and I asked him, to th- I, I was thinking back to when he was a young person, a young person. And I said to him, you know, as your life has gone forward these 30 or more years, uh, how do you look at it? Are you glad for the choices you made? Are you glad for some key points where you made a decision to go one way or another or for the things that happened to you? And he said, as I think most of us his age or my age would say, who are Christians, yeah, I, I'm just really thankful for what God has done providentially. And I encourage those of you who are walking with the Lord at whatever age you are to trust God, to trust God through those times when you're disappointed, to trust God uh, through those times when he seems to be disciplining you, to respond to that discipline. And even when you can't figure out what's going on, to trust him. God's providence is also, uh, or God's timing is also right in the years that he gives us here on earth. One person dies suddenly and maybe young or at an age that we just can't understand. Another lives longer than seems fitting because of the hardships and the pain and the sickness, the health problems that they may be experiencing. But for each one of us, the day and the hour are known to God. And that day will come, that day of your death. May each of us be ready. May each of us be trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, our only hope of salvation, not in our own righteousness. May we be doing what we can with our time and abilities to please our Lord and Savior. May we live each day as if it is our last, and on the other hand, apply ourselves to our work as if we may be living here for years and years to come. God's timing is also right in judgment. God's timing of judgment is certain and it is perfect. And when he comes in the second coming of Jesus Christ, the final consummation for which we pray, for which we rate, we rate. In 2 Peter 3, 3 through 13, Peter says, Scoffers will come and the last day is scoffing. They will say, where's the promise of the Lord's coming? For ever since the fathers have fallen asleep, nothing has happened. Creation has remained as it was. And Peter goes on to say, no, creation hasn't remained as it was. There was the flood that destroyed the world that was. And the destruction of this world that we see today is going to come not by water, but by fire, he says in Second Peter chapter 3. 
Do not look over, overlook this fact, beloved, that the Lord, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow concerning his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, that, that all should repent. And then he goes on to call us all to a life of holiness and godliness, waiting and hastening the day of the coming of the Lord. God's timing is always right. Well, one last point then this morning. Third and finally, from this genealogy, not only believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah, not only uh, be assured that God's timing is right in all the providences and events of life, but thirdly, know that God uses sinful, weak, and humble saints to accomplish his purposes. This is the third lesson I want us to see in the genealogy. Know that God uses sinful, weak, and humble saints to accomplish his purposes. <clears throat> Many writers have noted, <coughs> excuse me. Many writers have noted as you look through the genealogy here of the women that appear in the genealogy, and that's not always common in genealogy back in that day. And have noticed that these women that appear are in some cases Gentile women, sometimes a woman of ill report, and yet they were part of God's instruments in bringing his son to earth. Uh, look at verse 3. There's Tamar, who was uh, Judah's uh, daughter-in-law, by whom Perez was born. Uh, there's, she was a Gentile. There's Rahab, the woman who uh, kept the spies in verse 5. And then there's Ruth, who came from Moab, but came to faith in the Lord, in the uh, God of Israel. And Bathsheba, uh, the, the woman who gave birth to Solomon, uh, is also mentioned in verse 6, but her name is not given there. So there's women here who didn't have the greatest uh, record, or at least were not people that normally a Jewish person would look at maybe and say, oh, this person is a is a model to me. But the same thing really could be said of the men in uh, this genealogy. They were not uh, perfect men by any means. Isaac, the waffling servant of God. Jacob, the schemer. Judah, the fornicator. David, the murderer. And what about the sinful and foolish kings who follow in David's line? Uh, listed there in verses, uh, verses uh, 6 through 11. There was mention, there's mention there Solomon, the wisest man, but very foolish in some ways. Rehoboam, who's, under whose leadership the kingdom was divided. Asaph, Ahaz, Hezekiah. Some of these were good kings, but even the best kings had times when they sinned against God, including Hezekiah. Not long ago, somebody pointed out to me that Manasseh is in this list of kings. Manasseh was the worst king in Judah of all, and yet he repented. And those people that are in verses 12 through 16 are people that we know little or nothing about. Those ones who either went into captivity in Babylon or were born there, lived there, or maybe some of them who returned to Israel someday. They were not all stellar and spotless examples of what a godly person should be. But isn't that part of the point of the genealogy? Whom did Jesus come to save according to the gospel of Matthew and according to the other gospel writers? Did he come to save the righteous? No, Matthew 9, 12 through 13 says, 
Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Do we often, as a church, treat people and make people think that you have to be all polished and cleaned up to become a Christian? No, Christ polishes you. Christ cleans you up as you repent of your sins and put your trust in him. Matthew 11 says, At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Paul said, you notice that in the Christian church, the people who are Christians are not all the prominent and the best people of society. And what about Jesus' own apostles? Peter, who denied him three times. John, who, along with his brother James, lobbied for first place in the kingdom and wanted to call down fire of judgment on those who did not accept Jesus readily. Or what about Paul? The last of the apostles who says Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. So it's no surprise then looking at Jesus genealogy, his human genealogy, that Jesus saves people like you and me. Sinners granted mercy from God through faith in his only begotten son, the perfect one, Jesus Christ. God also then uses sinful and weak people who humbly serve him, people like us, to accomplish his purposes in the world. So this is a great encouragement that we can take home. Believe that Jesus is a long-awaited Messiah. Be assured that God's timing in the big events and in the smaller events that so affect your lives is always right. And know that God uses sinful, weak, and humble saints to accomplish his purposes and go forth and serve him. Yes, this Jesus is the descendant of David, the promised seed of Abraham, the Christ whose coming was foretold by the apostles, who came at the right time, lived and died, and rose from the grave, so that all who call on his name in faith and repentance might be saved from their sin and sanctified in preparation for heaven. Let's pray. Dear God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this section of your word that tells us about uh, the the, uh, progenitors of Jesus Christ in a human sense and also makes clear to us that he is your son, the son of God. Lord, encourage any of us who may be struggling uh, in our faith. Lord, help us to be ready to share with others the hope that is in us. Father in heaven, we pray for any who are going through hard times right now that you will remind them that you have all these things in your, um, in your plan. Lord, help us to know when you're calling us to repentance. Help us to know the things you're wanting us to change in our lives. Help us to know that in following you, we f- will find great joy. Help us to have confidence that as we make hard decisions that you know which is the right way and that you'll guide us in the best way. Father in heaven, uh, we pray that you will help us to be humble, not acknowledging our sins, acknowledging our weaknesses, Uh, Heavenly Father, but realizing, too, that you've called each one of us at a certain time in our lives and to certain relationships and places in life, and that you really have equipped us, that you've given us the the power and the love and the self-control that we need for whatever comes our way. We know that we have the strength to follow you and to live rightly and to make right decisions as your Holy Spirit guides us and works through us. Bless this congregation of your people. Continue to make them fruitful. fruitful. 
Answer their prayers and show them your way forward. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.